from Matthew, chapter 20, starting at verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. The second reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting at verse 15. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. This is now uh, my final sermon on 1 Corinthians. Um, hopefully only for a, for a time being, but uh, not like forever. Uh, but it's the final sermon in a series of sermons, a series of sermons uh, that began back in August of 2019. And since that time, in installments, we've looked 
at the entire book, the whole book, every chapter and verse, leading us now to the final chapter, chapter 16, of which today we'll look at the final section. Last week we saw how this chapter, which appears to be, appears to be a somewhat bitsy collection or selection of final comments, final instructions, final exhortations, final explanations, some formal greetings, a benediction, uh, and a farewell. Uh, they are actually opportunities for Paul to teach and remind them of things. Our text for this week begins with words of commendation. Words of commendation with respect to three men, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. And uh, by the way, uh, Jane, I have no idea how to pronounce his name, uh, but um, <clears throat> you might be right, I might be right. Achaicus, I'm, I'm, I'm taking that. I've discovered that this old Bible here, which we use for decorative purposes only, actually has the name spelt phonetically. So uh, <laughs> maybe it's Achaicus. If you know better, then by all means let me know uh, after the sermon. But here, here's what the text says, verse 15. You know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanas, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you for they refreshed my spirit, and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. And as we might already know and remember, this letter that we've been reading, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, as we know it, this letter is actually a letter of response to a letter that the Corinthian church sent Paul. They wanted Paul's answer to a small number of tricky questions, issues that were dividing them into opposing camps, issues that they were struggling with for themselves. In fact, there were two problems, and Paul begins his answer to these difficulties in chapter 7, a chapter that begins with the word, now for the matters you wrote about. And thereafter, we see that the first problem is the question of celibacy and marriage. Is the call to celibacy a higher call than the call to married life? And if that is so, what should married people do about it? The, the second problem comes to the surface in chapter 8. As Christians, are we free or are we not free to participate in the community barbecues that take place in the pagan temples along with all other members of society? Paul's answers to these two questions are lengthy because he uses each of them as an opportunity to take us back to basics. Indeed, so that we might be able to solve for ourselves all manner of other problems that might emerge later on. And so, all in all, Paul's responses to these two queries require four chapters. Chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. But, and you may already have had this thought, if it only takes Paul 
four chapters to address their questions, and indeed that activity doesn't even start until chapter seven, then what are all the other 12 chapters about? Because this is a 16 chapter document. Well, the real problem, the real problem, the, 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 the problem beneath the apparent problem is, as we've seen, is that this is a divided church. Uh, they are not united. Paul, therefore, begins his letter with a sermon about the centrality of the cross. And he ends this letter with a sermon about the centrality of the resurrection. A divided congregation hasn't understood what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. A, a divided congregation is an ignorant congregation. And so, also, Paul writes at length about other issues and problems within that church that they did not write about. For example, um, how the church is split and divided into competing and fighting theological factions, each with its hero, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, Christ, Paul, etc. Secondly, how they had casually redefined marriage so as to allow a man to marry his widowed stepmother. Thirdly, how the church was riddled with lawsuits and counter-lawsuits. Each, you know, they're all taking each other to court. Fourthly, how there were men in the church visiting the temple prostitutes. Fifth, how they were in their worship services sending confused messages about gender identity when it came to leading those services. Sixth, how the rich were shaming the poor when it came to their Holy Communion love feasts. Seven, how they were using the gifts of the Holy Spirit in shows of competitive vainglory, showing off to each other how spiritual they were. And eight, how some of them were even teaching that there is no resurrection of the dead. And along the way, Paul has used phrases like, some from Chloe's household have informed me, or it is actually reported that, or, and I hear that, etc., etc. So Paul's sources of information then for his letter of response include members of the delegation who brought the Corinthian letter to him. That's a source of information as well as the letter itself. And as you remember, from last week, we talked about it, but we've seen this all along, how Paul's, letter, Paul's language in, at times gets incredibly strong. You know, th these issues excite a really emotional, strong response from Paul. Twice, twice he says, I say this to your shame. And in an unashamed culture, that is potentially relationship-destroying. That could be a deal-breaker. Indeed, he's shamed, he's shamed and named particular individuals. He's shamed their corporate church culture. And he's told them repeatedly, you don't know what you're talking about. So then, as Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, and members of Chloe's household return to Corinth, carrying with them Paul's letter, like a hand grenade, it could well be seen 
they, their return could well be seen as the return of the dobbers, the return of the whistleblowers. It would be entirely natural for these people to be seen as traitors, as well as messengers bearing ill tidings. And generally speaking, human beings don't like either of those things. Not good either way. But Paul insists that they be treated as returning heroes, not villains. Two instructions. Submit to, people like, uh, submit to these people and those like them. Secondly, give them the recognition that they deserve. Why? Three reasons. Firstly, they've been Christians for longer than anyone else in Corinth. And whilst that's not everything, it's something. All things being equal, it is reasonable to assume that those who've been walking with the Lord the longest know best what they're talking about. Secondly, these people have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, to the service of the Lord's people. Their love for the Lord Jesus has always been translated into acts of servanthood. Third, and with respect to both Paul and to the Corinthian church, they have supplied what was needed, refreshing spiritually both Paul and the Corinthian church. These men serve the Lord Jesus, therefore, with their labors, with their time, and with their money. Kenneth Bailey explains this passage in the following words. He says, Paul says, look for those who voluntarily give themselves in self-emptying service to others and follow them. The battle cry is, line up behind the servants. For Paul, the word be subject has to do with supporting those who voluntarily offer humble service to others. Leadership in this new fellowship called the body of Christ and the new temple is about finding the Mother Teresas of the world and joining them in their servanthood. Unquote. Um, if, if you were with us last week, you might remember that we thought about the fact that Paul refused payment from the Corinthian church when he was actually there serving them as a pastor. He refused to take their money then. But when it comes to his missionary endeavors, Paul really expects them to know that they have an obligation to support him. In a similar way, Paul's letter to the Philippians, which uh, again is a letter written in response to a gift, a gift of support in his missionary endeavors, Paul's letter to the Philippians has sometimes been called the thank you letter with no thank you. The same thing here. Paul receives financial support from the Corinthian church by way of representative personal donations from Stephanus Fortunatus and Achaicus without thanking them. He acknowledges the impact. They have refreshed his spirit. But he doesn't actually say thank you. I think, this is speculative, but I think that is probably cultural. You see, in a lot of cultures, 
words of thanks are reserved exclusively for situations in which someone has done something for you above and beyond the customary, where they've exceeded the obligation. The words thank you in those cultures acknowledge a debt that cannot be repaid. I understand that even today, if uh, you're buying a loaf of bread, uh, say in a bakery in Athens, you wouldn't say thank you to the shop assistant. That would just be considered strange. But perhaps if you asked for bread and you told them that you had no money, but yet they gave you what you needed, then you would say thank you. That's a debt I cannot repay. Perhaps, perhaps Paul is deliberately not thanking them because he knows that they'll misunderstand him if he does. He is receiving a good thing and he acknowledges that, but he wants to make it clear that they are simply fulfilling an obligation that is part of belonging to the body of Christ. Someone else paid or supported the missionary who brought us the gospel. We therefore are obliged to likewise continue to support those missionaries, those who are bringing the gospel to gospel-poor areas of the world. Paul usually concludes his letters with greetings from people who want to be remembered to them, the, the recipients uh, of the, the letter. These lists of greetings, which in some letters are short, in other letters are, are very long, these lists of greetings build relationship and goodwill. Aquila and Priscilla worked with Paul while he was with um, the Corinthian church in Corinth. Um, they're working with him again now in Ephesus, which is where Paul is writing this letter. Um, although originally, I think, uh, Paul, uh, uh, sorry, Aquila and Priscilla were from Rome. But Aquila and Priscilla, who know the church well, they send their love. And Paul closes, with, um, formal, closes his formal greetings with, greet one, one another with a holy kiss. Uh, this was uh, before COVID-19. Paul closes this letter and his letter to the Romans and his letter, second letter to the Corinthians and his first letter to the Thessalonian church with the same instruction. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And in a society where you greeted equals with a kiss on the cheek, superiors with a bow and perhaps a kiss to the hand, for a congregation to greet each other without distinction by way of rank, um, by way of a holy kiss, all of them greeting each other with a holy kiss, a chaste kiss on the cheek. That, that was a radical demonstration in their culture of what we would today call equality in Christ. Acceptance of everyone as equals, brothers and sisters under Christ. Not, not necessarily equality of authority or equality of, of identical uh, role, but absolute equality of belonging. Verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. In other words, that's the bit that he actually wrote with his hand. 
um, on, the, on, the, on the parchment or, or whatever the medium was, um, that probably stands as a verification, like a signature nowadays. Uh, nevertheless, it, it stands to remind us that Paul di probably dictated this letter to a secretary or to a scribe. The technical term is an amanuensis, and amanuensis is often responsible uh, for more than simply taking dictation. Sometimes the thought and content came from the acknowledged author, but the grammar and phraseology, particularly maybe if if the person dictating the letter is, is not a fluent Greek speaker, then, then sometimes the amanuensis supplied the grammar and phraseology. Paul signs off his letter to the Galatians with, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand, Galatians 6.11. And that... Uh, that fits with, that's um, information consistent with, it doesn't prove, but it's consistent with the hypothesis, with the idea that Paul may have struggled with poor eyesight and with a chronic eye condition through his missionary years. A scribe might have been necessary for Paul in order to save precious funds. Big letters means lots of parchment and ink. A letter is already an extremely expensive undertaking. And apart from anything else, you have to pay to get it there. Verses 22 and 23 seem to contain both a curse and a blessing. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. Uh, the Greek word that's been translated as uh, cursed is anathema, uh, which uh, in turn uh, became a church word, uh, meaning excommunication. Uh, and it's become an English word, anathema, um, uh, today, meaning something utterly to be rejected as unthinkable. Uh, but if it's actually an Aramaic word that Paul is transliterating into Greek letters. Um, and what does this word anathema mean? Well, people struggle with it a bit. It, 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 it occurs six places in the New Testament. However, it occurs quite a bit in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament that Paul and Jesus would have heard in the synagogue. And there, actually, the word anathema is used of things offered up to God in sacrifice. And even where we find it in the New Testament, sometimes it has sacrificial overtones. I, I'm not sure, but I suspect that a, a more nuanced translation is perhaps necessary. A lot of English translations leave the final three words untranslated, giving something like we find in the King James Bible, which says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, Maranatha. Uh, in, in both of his letters to the Corinthian church, Paul heavily hints his belief that there are actually significant numbers of people in that church who, in essence, are unconverted. They don't get Jesus. They don't get what Paul is going on about because they simply haven't met him yet. They haven't surrendered their lives to him. 
Thus, rather than Paul saying, to hell with non-Christians, which is how it can sound, Paul is perhaps saying something a little bit more like this. If you're going to treat the ministry of anyone with contempt, if you're going to sideline anyone's voice, let it be the voice and ministry of those who plainly don't love Jesus and make him central. But may Jesus, in his coming, judge. And so finally, Paul signs off. Love from me to all of you in Christ Jesus. Whatever's been said, it's been said because Paul loves the Corinthians, he loves the Corinthian church, and he wants the very best for them. But Stephen Daly, the uh, amateur psychologist who just knows just enough psychology to be dangerous, wants to shout out, Behind you, Paul! Watch out! In other words, I don't think they're going to hear that. You signing off, I love you, will be meaningless to a people still stinging and reeling from rebuke and criticism. They won't be able to hear it. And then they're not going to take this rebuke lying down. But perhaps Paul can't see that because he's just assuming that they'll take him at his word. And for Paul, for Paul, it's always been about love. Love is what keeps him in the conversation. His love for these people is seen in his constant prayers for them, which begin by thanking God for them and the extraordinary grace that they've been given in Christ Jesus. Paul's love for them is seen in his preparedness to spend long time, long periods of time with them at his own expense. And his desire to be with them again when they're separated. Paul's love for them is seen in his boasting about them to other churches in other areas, like a parent who just can't help exaggerating when it comes to speaking of their child's latest achievement. Paul's love for them is seen in his willingness to carefully compose, seal, and arrange delivery of lengthy letters that are not cheap. I've read somewhere, I'm not sure where, it might be Kenneth Bailey again, um, I've read that a document like Paul's letter to the Romans may have cost in the region of $45,000 in today's terms. Letter writing was costly. It was I'm not sure if that figure is true, but I, I believe it's true in principle that these are expensive undertakings. A, a, a costly demonstration of love. A meaningful sacrifice for the sake of the welfare of others. And Paul's love for them is seen, of course, in his willingness to say what must be said, even though, and we know this in ample measure, it will be costly for him to say it. For the Corinthians, we've encountered a church where it actually wasn't all about love. It was actually all about performance. And it was about the performance of being spiritual. They, they were keen on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, oh yeah, that's great, that's a good thing. But they were keen on the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are not costly. They were keen on the ones by which they might, according to their own measure, show off their 
hyper-spiritual otherworldliness to each other and to the world. Perhaps we might recognize that phenomenon today. To paraphrase a recent sermon by John Yates, he writes, in the Australian church, the cultivation and practice of spectacular ministry based on astonishing giftedness has displaced love as the dominant mode of building churches. Pastor X is famous for his teaching gift and the books he has written. Sister Y has an astonishing vision and prophetic gift. Whilst Brother Z has an unsurpassable anointing. Greatly gifted men and women have planted massive movements in our time. But what is publicly missing is evidence of what it has cost them to do it. Unquote. But it is about love. That, that's what builds churches up. Not knowledge, not giftedness, not spirituality, not performance, not even programs. For Paul, there's faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul has to teach them about love. We might remember Back in chapter 13, right in the middle of his teaching on gifts of the Holy Spirit, he provides for them a detailed poetic description of love. As though they'd never heard of the word before. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not envious. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable not counting the wrongs, not rejoicing in wrongdoing, but rejoicing in the truth. It endures everything, it believes everything, it hopes everything. Love never fails. Paul's letter is going to soften some hearts in Corinth and harden others. Paul's letter is going to create for him powerful enemies. That's why, for me, getting caught up in the drama of First and Second Corinthians, I want to shout out, behind you, Paul! People are going to say really hurtful things about Paul, things that will wound him deeply. With respect to suffering for the sake of the welfare of that particular church, Paul has only just begun. My love to all of you, in Christ Jesus. Amen.